Hey, great, great episode today. I mean, hour number two was rocking my world. I don't know what to think. Uh, we we had somebody that told us a story about Anthony Fauci and the Welcome uh, Group, the, the big guys over in the UK about COVID and a cover-up that you've never heard that'll blow your mind. Also, January 6th, facts on January 6th you've never heard that will blow your mind. We start the show with great news on the Great Reset, some things that are happening, and we end the show with marketing. The world is changing. If you're a business person, you need to listen to our number three, Exponential, uh, a book that just came out today by Jeff Rosenblum that is fantastic, explaining how things are changing and how we all need to change with it. Don't forget to subscribe to Blaze TV at blazetv.com slash Glenn. Speaking of The Great Reset, if you use the code The Great Reset, you'll save 15 bucks off your subscription to Blaze TV. Book is also available now at glensnewbook.com. It's uh, the number one book in the country, The Great Reset by Glenn Beck. Get it at glensnewbook.com. Here's the podcast. You're listening to... The best of the Glenn Beck program. So I, I read this article um, from uh, brownstone.org uh, what, about a week ago, I think. And it came out from Jeffrey Tucker. And he reviewed, he reviewed uh, Jeremy Farrar's book. He's, Jeremy Farrar is a professor at Oxford University. He's the head of the Wellcome Trust. Uh, which is he's the he's the largest private uh, investor in in gain of function and other things like that. Sketchy, I think, sketchy things. Um, and uh, he is he was very, very involved over in the UK with the messaging and everything else and all of the lockdowns, et cetera, et cetera. But. Uh, Jeffrey Tucker, as he's reviewing his book, he says there's some things in here that kind of poke its head out at you. Um, he says, um, let me let me just quote some of the book. Now, this is, again, written by the guy who was Anthony Fauci. By the second week of January, I was beginning to realize the scale of what was happening. I was also getting the uncomfortable feeling that some of the information needed by scientists all around the world to detect and fight this new disease was not being disclosed as fast as it could be. I didn't know it then, but a fraught few weeks lay ahead. In those weeks, I became exhausted and scared. I felt as though I were living a different person's life. During that period, I would do things I've never done before. Acquire a burner phone, hold clandestine meetings, keep difficult secrets. I would have a surreal conversation with my wife, Christiane, who persuaded me that we should let the people closest to us know what was going on. I phoned my brother and my best friend to give them my temporary number. In hushed conversations, I sketched out the possibility of a looming global health crisis that had the potential to read as bioterrorism. If anything happens to me in the next few weeks, I told them nervously, this is what you need to know. Uh, wow, that's and that's just the beginning of this. 
Jeffrey Tucker is uh, is here. He's the one who brought this to my attention. Jeffrey, how are you, sir? <laughs> Good. I, I love I love hearing all that stuff. That's just great. You know, he wrote this. Tyrar uh, wrote this in the uh, in uh, the book came out in August. I, how and did I we miss this? It. How I mean, this is crazy. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I tend to read all these books because I'm just voracious. I've been writing about this ridiculous subject since January 2020. So I'm, you know, I, I love this stuff. But, but when the book came out, you kind of figure he wrote this over the summer. I think there, there might have been more of an atmosphere of openness uh, back then uh, that's since been sort of closed. They've gotten more hush-hush since that time. And I think maybe Ferrar thought it was okay to reveal all this stuff since the pandemic is ending and everything was kind of calming down or he wanted to write uh, his story. Um, but now looking at it, uh, you know, after all this time, here we are in, in January 2022, it, it, it's spooky and it, and it plays right into uh, a, a sense that we've all had that something went very, very, very wrong. wrong in the world, somewhere between... Uh, the middle of January, and then the middle of March. So, you know, what was going on? And we know now from their own words what they were doing for the better part of uh, a month or, or six weeks. They were trying to figure out if this was a lab leak, if the lab leak, and there were, he reports to being 80% sure that it was, and whether the leak was deliberate or accidental didn't really... Uh, matter to them, they needed to figure out the political spin. So here you have, and, and they, you know, they got on these meetings. This is, I think, he reports that something like January 30th. Yeah. They had a, a profound sense that this is likely a leak. So they met in a Zoom call on February the 1st. Um, you know, it's, so Collins and Farrar and Fauci and various other uh, health uh, 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 scientists with, with whom they were connected and began to sort of mop, map out a strategy for dealing with the lab leak. Issue. And it's, it's not that, now, I mean, um, he even said 80% chance. Um, he, I mean, why would you have burner phones and clandestine meetings? Why would you be worried about somebody offing you if this was, a, if this was natural? It, it, that, that doesn't make any sense at right. all. No, it doesn't make any sense at all. And I guess from my point of view, first of all, I've never been a, I'm not enough of a scientist or expert to know if it's a lab leak or not. Sure. It, in some sense, Clint, it doesn't actually matter. What matters is that they believed that it was. Okay? Correct. Correct. So that's what dictated their, their, their response. So here you have the world's top, most influential ruling class public health, um, I guess, experts, blah, blah, blah. Instead of trying to figure out the demographics of, of death, the nature of the virus, you know, the best therapeutics, for example, uh, and, and being honest and open with the public about what was coming and what to do, they spent that critical whole month of February plotting a, a, a response, a political spin, and basically engaged in a cover-up in his own words, with burner phones, clandestine meetings, uh, sleepless nights, and so on. So I think it's just a scandal. And, and you can look at other information that shows that that report that came out in Nature magazine saying, oh, it's not a lab leak, that was written four days following that first Zoom call with Colin Chachi, Ferrari, and so on. But here's what's interesting about that article. They sat on it for the better part of February, 
and didn't release it until March 17th. Now, that was the day after the uh, Fauci-Burks-Trump uh, news conference announcing uh, the national lockdowns, the day following. And suddenly, they're, they're telling the whole wow. world, it's natural, it's not a lab leak. So all of this is just, you can say, oh, that's just a coincidence. I don't think so. They planned this whole thing out. And, of course, that article came under grueling criticism for the rest of the year. And now we know it was just, it's just nonsense. But it's political spin. Uh, so, t- so tell me, tell me a little bit. About, uh, tell tell me a little bit about Jeremy Farrar and the the Welcome Trust, because from what I understand, I know very little about it. But Welcome Trust is a, a group that I think up until the eighties, maybe the nineties, still were kind of embracing eugenics. Uh, I mean, it's a really kind of spooky uh, group, isn't it? Or do I have that wrong? Uh, that's my understanding. So we, I don't think we have anything in the U.S. like it, except maybe the Gates, you know, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, maybe. But it, it is private, but it's funded by a lot of pharmaceutical industries, too. And they dole out a lot of money for research. So they've got every sort of public health scientist in England on their payroll. So Farrar is a very powerful guy. Like Fauci is in this country with NIH. I mean, the NIH controls $50 billion. I don't know what the numbers are for Welcome Trust, but it's, uh, it's right up there. So uh, he's a very powerful figure. I mean, right up there with Fauci and the rest of them. And they... Really important guy. And he believes, like Fauci, in gain-of-function research? Oh, sure. No, they're, they're all dedicated to this, this disgusting uh, thing. Um, they think it's the coolest thing going. And they, you know, and they, they were working very closely with their friends at the Wuhan lab. And we know this. Uh, they, that's, what, you know, that's where they got the information about the possible lab leak. And they were trying to get the information out. Now, uh, Glenn, I didn't go into it, but there's so much we need to learn here. But, there's, but we know from Fauci's emails that, that the U.S., U.K., and Australia all sent a delegation to China in the middle of February, I mean, somewhere between like, I don't know, the 14th and 16th, it's very difficult for me to reconstruct these timelines because it's all so confusing. We have just mixed information. But there's definitely a delegation that went to China to figure out how it is that they so successfully controlled the virus through lockdowns, you know? So they come back from that, and this is all because it's tax paid and whatever, in part. Uh, they come back from that going, up. Oh, China has figured out how to control this virus. We know now how to do it. We have to lock everybody in their homes, quarantine everybody, control the population and socially distance and so on. So then they had, you know, following that little junket to China, they had a full month to kind of work out the details. And very crucially, very importantly, they had to persuade Trump to do it. They had to persuade Trump to destroy the Trump economy. Uh, How'd they do it? For, for uh, well, um, now that's, what, you know, it's pretty interesting because Scott Atlas reports a lot of this, but um, so they, they went, first of all, they relied on Burks because they figured Burks, he liked Burks and he didn't like Fauci. So they relied on her. She went into him and persuaded him that this virus is from China. It might have come from a lab uh, and we needed to stop it 
uh, and there's a metric we're going to use uh, called cases. We're going to keep cases at a very minimum. There are not that many cases here now. If we shut down the world, shut down the country, shut down all bars and restaurants and so on for two weeks, then we'll get ahead of it. Uh, Trump, I think, it was just a small meeting, right? We're talking about Fauci, Burks, Kushner, and Kushner had two friends. Um uh, with him. And they just met in the Oval Office and Trump immediately agreed. He said, okay, I'll do that. Now that was, uh, that was over the weekend of March 12th and 13th. He had already shut down travel from Europe, but it was that Saturday and Sunday so where it they is, mapped out a strategy for the, the lockdown. So, cause my feeling was at the time that two weeks, what mm. was a reasonable thing to do. Um, and then it just started uh-huh. to morph uh, we didn't know what we were dealing yeah. with. So it it was presented to him. Um, uh, it seems almost kind of casually like, look, this is really going to be bad. Uh, but if we just do it for two weeks, but I don't think that was their plan, was it? No, they needed two weeks just to kind of warm them up to the idea. Then after two weeks, they uh, uh, went further and said, uh, listen, we've made a lot of progress, but if you open up right now, you're going to reverse that progress. We need another two weeks. Mm. Then after two more weeks, I went to him and said, and so finally Trump, and, and meanwhile, Trump is being praised by the media, right? Right. So that was an unusual thing for him. Hey, he couldn't get, couldn't get over that. Actually, he sort of liked that. He said, well, everybody likes me. <laughs> yeah. Uh- yeah, that, that worked out well. Um, and so he gradually, gradually came around. Glenn, let me, can I just back up just slightly? Because there's, a, some, there's something interesting that I might have skipped over. In the last week of February, because Fauci was writing CBS News at the time. I'm talking about, like, say, February 25th, saying uh, uh, this virus is going to come. It's going to become endemic. We don't need a vaccine. Uh, it's it's going to be bad, mm. but uh, it's, it, we're going to get through it. Because he's more or less saying what I would call like quasi-rational things, right? Right. <laughs> um, and then about about uh, about about two days later, the first evidence I can find where Fauci changes his mind uh, on this is I'm, I'm not going to say two days. I think it's February 26th. He writes a private email of all people, to Morgan Fairchild. You probably remember her as the kind of the 80s actress, you know? Yes. uh, Could it get any more bizarre? Now Morgan Fairchild is in on this. Yeah. All right. Morgan Fairchild, yeah. And she she played Dottie in in Peewee's Big Adventure, you know? Right, right. Um, Anyway, he's, Fauci, old man, you know, is convinced that she's a powerful social media figure that everybody will listen to. And he writes her and says, listen, we need to start warming people up to the idea of lockdowns. We might have to close schools and churches and businesses and everything else. That, I think, was February 26th. Now, the uh, very next day, the New York Times... A very powerful daily podcast hosted by Michael Barbero with their top virus reporter named uh-huh. Donald J. McNeil. And they they ran, you know, a 20, 30 minute interview with the guy in which he's really predicting the plague. Right. So he, he predicts something like four and a half million Americans are going to die. Makes no reference to the demographics of death. Just really right. amazing. A level of panic that was very uncharacteristic for the New York Times, right? Very uncharacteristic. Why would the New York Times be trying to whip up a public frenzy over, over the coming disease? I mean, it's, it's just not 
the style of the newspaper. Jeffrey, I'm going to have to have you back because uh, I've only got a couple of minutes here left in this segment. But um, uh, go ahead and yeah, yeah. and let's yeah. finish what what you uh, what you just started. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, well, this concerns uh, Donald McNeil, right? Uh, the report now. Uh, so he writes an article February 28th saying. We should go medieval on this. We shouldn't use traditional public health. We should shut everybody in their homes and lock down the highways and, and block the planes and so on. So it's gets crazy stuff, right? I just don't believe that the New York Times would be saying these things unless they had some kind of green light mm. from NIH, NIH, Fauci, and Collins, and the rest of it. In other words, this was the turning point. Sometime between, February, say, February 20th and February 28th, uh, when, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, the ruling class decided that they're going to destroy everything. And uh, it's super creepy. And I, we've got, there's so much we need to know. Donald McNeil, by the way, was later sacrificed, as you well know, uh, fired from his job and so on. Um, once he played his appointed role, he was no longer useful. And so he was, now he's just riding on stuff to attack by himself. It's, just got COVID, by the way. <laughs> Jeff, it is really weird I feel like we live in a, a Jason Bourne movie. You know, it's bizarre. I agree with you. And, you know, as much, and you are, uh, think about this stuff all the time as I do. And I, I obsessively read every uh, leak, every yeah. book, everything. And I feel like I only understand, you know, maybe 15%. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there is so much investigation. It's going to consume us for a long time. For the next uh, for a long time. Yeah. Uh, Jeffrey, I'd love to have you back and we'll continue to tell the story. Um, you're a great storyteller and, and yeah, thank you for all of your hard work on this. Uh, Jeffrey Tucker, you can follow him at his website, uh, brownstone.org or on Twitter, Jeffrey A. Tucker. The uh, name of the article is The Lab Leak, The Plots and Schemes of Jeremy Farrar, Anthony Fauci, and Francis Collins. More in a minute. This is the best of the Glenn Beck program, and we really want to thank you for listening. If you are a business person, uh, you run your own small company, you have any kind of business that you do online uh, or in, you know, brick and mortar, you need to listen to uh, hour number three of today's podcast coming up in about 25 minutes. I have I have a guy that I, I would pay him just about anything just to consult me um, and uh, and business. He is absolutely brilliant. One of the best minds out there, I think. Uh, and uh, he's coming in. We're going to talk about business a little bit and uh, how to succeed and what you can do to succeed. That's coming up in just a few minutes. Uh, Julie Kelly is also with us. Um, she's a senior contributor. I don't know if you've if you've gone to America Greatness uh, or AM Greatness dot com. It's American Greatness, the website. But they have a lot of great stories. They have uh, really good coverage on pretty much everything america that you might care about um and she is she's one of the people one of the only people uh that has really gone in and looked at what the the capital riot and the people who were in jail what their living conditions uh are what's really happening nobody really wants to do this for some reason or another 
And Julie has a new book uh, that is out called January 6th. And I wanted to spend just a few minutes with her uh, today. Hi, Julie. Hi, Glenn. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, you, you are, uh, you're welcome. Thank you for the work that you are doing uh, on January 6th. I mean, it's a, it's a very difficult topic because nobody wants somebody to be able to go in and smash things in the Capitol and get away with it scot-free. Um, however, what's happening is just seemingly radical injustice when grandma is going to jail and people like Ray Epps just we don't even we we don't have questions even asked about him. That's exactly right. I mean, we do have shockingly political prisoners in the United States. We now have at least 80 men who have been detained and denied bail not because they are a threat to society or a flight risk. Almost all of them have no criminal record. But this Justice Department um, is seeking people to be incarcerated, held behind bars, in some cases, Glenn, at least 18 months before they even have a chance to defend themselves in front of a judge or a jury. So this is punishment for protesting Joe Biden's election. It is an egregious double standard of justice. As you know, we have how many criminals who ran free in the summer of 2020, attacked federal officers, destroyed property, yet we don't have them in jail awaiting trial, denied bail. So here we have at least, go ahead. Who are these, who are these people? I mean, because nobody's talking about this and you can't really get anybody in Congress or the Senate to do anything. It doesn't seem like these people just kind of have disappeared and you don't know what to believe. So who are they? Well, um, the majority have been charged with either assaulting or interfering with law enforcement. Um, and so, of course, that's not anything we support. Although, as I Correct. explain in my book, Glenn, another uncovered issue is how police attacked and assaulted protesters in many cases first, prompting a lot of the confrontations that we saw see on little video clips. Um, but still, we still have a process, right? They are entitled to the presumption of innocence. They're entitled to a speedy trial. They are entitled to have access to their defense attorney and the evidence against them. They still cannot even access their discovery materials in this D.C. jail because the guards will not let them have access to whatever the lawyers try to send them. I've heard this repeatedly, not just from detainees and defense lawyers, but by judges And it's these judges who keep signing off on these pretrial detention orders solely based on the fact they view these people as insurrectionists who try to overthrow democracy on January 6th. It's absurd. But if they haven't heard, if they haven't heard uh, any of the the other side. And I mean, this is this is really uh, a very, very dark chapter in American history. If what you're saying is true. This is one of the worst things that we'll, we will look back on and say, good God, what was wrong with us as people? I completely agree, Glenn. And I think it is just contemptible that Republican leaders, we have a few speaking out. Marjorie Taylor Greene and Louis Gomer actually went to the jail a number of times and basically finally forced themselves into this D.C. gulag holding at least 40 of these men right now. The others are at jails across the country and saw not just the deplorable conditions of that jail, 
but the entire D.C. Um, Department of Corrections. But the difference is most of the men who are held in general population in the D.C. jail have been convicted of a crime. We're talking about men who don't even have trial dates in some cases, but yet they've been in that jail since February, March, April. They're still waiting to get a trial date. And these pretrial detention hearings by these judges, and I'm talking Trump judges too, have turned into one-sided hearings where these judges take whatever evidence the DOJ gives them, declares these men basically guilty, and incarcerates them before they can even have a chance to defend themselves. It's really shocking, and I detail a lot of it in my book. So, wait, why can we not get people uh, interested in this? I mean, the political people. Why is it down to those two congress congressmen? Congress people. Because, as you know, Glenn, our Republican leadership in Washington is weak. They're cowards. And in many cases, they have gone along with this, quote unquote, insurrection narrative. Um, You had Mitch McConnell calling in an insurrection. You had Ted Cruz, who finally had to walk back his statement. This was a domestic terror attack after he got pushed back because they have gone along with this narrative all along. And they view these people as not people that are entitled to any defense. And that just simply is not true. You have been accused of nonviolent crimes. They haven't even been charged with a weapons violation, attacking a police officer, destroying any property, who have been held in the school act for nearly a year. And their trial dates are the middle of this year or late this year because the trials keep getting pushed back, too, because of COVID. It is such a rigged system against these men. And you know the juries are not going to be impartial. Um, And no one really seems to care. Well, I do. I just don't know what to do about it. What do we do about it? Well, I think we just keep bringing attention to it. And when you have Republican lawmakers on, I think you press them on it. I think your listeners need to call their congressmen and senators and say, we demand more attention to this. Go to this jail. Demand to find out what's happening inside of it. Call this DOJ out, not just for how it infiltrated, obviously, as we know, it's hundreds, if not thousands of FBI informants and agents that day, um, but also continuing to demand that these men are incarcerated indefinitely, awaiting trials that this DOJ keeps pushing back. So that is the only way to get attention is if uh, the, their constituents start demanding accountability for this politi- for the system of political prisoners. So there is a there's a couple of stories out uh, today. I just want to read some of the headlines. FBI's war on soccer moms. Uh, the FBI director, Andrew McCabe, um, comes out and says, I'm fairly confident from what little we've seen from the FBI that they have resources and repositioned some of their counterterrorism focus to increase uh, their uh, view on right wing extremism and, and domestic violence extremists. Um, we know clearly white people from the suburbs Pose a threat of domestic violence. Um, that just came out. The FBI have, have tried to backtrack now um, on the synagogue attack. Um, that was so clear. Uh, the January 6th panel is now talking about the 14th Amendment and invoking that so Bush, uh, so that uh, Trump can't run again. How, how devastating uh, and deep is this infection into real, true justice? 
Well, there isn't. And this is why, Glenn, people need to reconsider what they think they saw on January 6th. This was not an organic uprising of Trump supporters incited by the president. There is no way that the Democrats just seized on this immediately to seek and and fulfill all sorts of political goals, which is basically criminalizing political dissent. That's why I suggest that January 6th was mostly an inside job orchestrated by the DOJ, the FBI, House Democrats, U.S. Capitol Police, uh, D.C. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, just a second. I think I need to spend more time with you because I'm up against a break. Uh, so we have to have you back, though. That's quite the charge in your book. Do you lay out the facts to to uh, prove that point, at least reasonable doubt? Yes, I do. I lay it all out in my book. The FBI's involvement, U.S. Capitol Police, why they kept the Capitol intentionally unsecure that day. These are the sorts of unanswered questions and the January 6th committee refusal to address any of that and hiding 14,000 hours of surveillance video from the public. Those should raise a lot of suspicions in people's minds about what actually what happened related to January 6th. Any doubt in your mind, the answers that they were trying to get uh, just last week about Ray Epps and the FBI, there's no doubt in your mind then that 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 is exactly what was going on, that this was a this was a group of people that didn't have an intent to go in. But there was uh, some sort of FBI involvement that kind of spurred that on. Yes. And that's why you had the top D, uh, FBI official refuse to answer whether agents or informants either incited or engaged in violent criminal behavior that day. That was a jaw dropper. And they haven't come back and corrected her statement at all. And she refused twice under oath to, to deny that FBI agents or informants were involved in criminal, violent criminal behavior that day. Julie, I'd love to have you on again for a longer period of time, and you can lay out all of the evidence here. Um, I am I'm going to go buy your book uh, today. Uh, right. It's Thanks. January 6th is the name of the book. Julie Kelly, uh, Julie Kelly, she's senior contributor for American Greatness. Uh, but you have um, she has, you know, written for the National Review, the Federalist, uh, the Hill, the Wall Street Journal, Chicago Tribune, Forbes. I mean, she's not a uh, she's not a nobody if you don't know who she is. Uh, Julie Kelly and the name of the book is January 6th. More in a minute. This is the best of the Glenn Beck program. It's the new year, and you know what that means, New Year's resolutions. But if your resolution is like mine this year to eat a little healthier, make sure that you include Built Bars in that plan. Ever since the first time I tried a Built Bar, I've been a huge fan. I hate protein bars and all of that stuff because it usually tastes like it comes from a chemical factory. But Built Bars have changed all of that. Most Built Bars have about 130 calories, 4 grams of sugar, 4 grams of net carbs, and 17 grams of protein. They're also made with 100% real chocolate, amazing flavors that you're going to really love. So get rid of all the snacks that taste good that aren't friendly to your waistline. Even if you're not big on working out, 
which I'm also not a fan of. You can at least be eating something that tastes good, but is also really pretty good for you as well. It's Built.com. Built.com, promo code BEC15. Get 15% off your order right now. BEC15, 15% off, Built.com. Welcome to the program, Jeff Rosenblum. How are you, sir? I'm great. Thank you for having me. It is, it is great to have you. I read your book, I think, in a day. Uh, you were the uh, you're the author of Friction, which is one of my other favorite business books. I just gave it to a CEO of a company who who uh, it was in. We were just talking about what brands actually mean. And uh, I said, you have to read this book. I went and got my copy. They're hard to get. And I gave it to him. Uh, and this is just as just as good. Exponential. Give me the premise first of of what you're laying out here yeah first of all thank you for the kind words and the support i really do appreciate it so the basic premise is this i'm an advertising guy but i've been obsessed with companies that dominate the competition right brands that absolutely grow exponentially they don't just have customers they have armies of evangelists Mm -hmm. and they have one simple tool it's empowerment they improve people's lives one small step at a time because everybody wakes up in the morning and they want one thing. They want to be better than they were the day before. It's at the heart of the human experience. It's what drives capitalism. It is. I think capitalism is the greatest charity ever. You're, you, if you are doing it right, you're thinking, how can I make people's lives easier or better? Uh, and you win and they win. Um, the The idea of... of making someone's life better for instance i i'm i'm really confused on some brands for instance apple Mm -hmm. uh apple does things and they do it right they really do it right and they have the art in the inside and they um uh their products are just easier to use more intuitive and they have changed my life however then you get this other side of these companies now that they don't seem to fit. So is it, is it the story or is it the actual product that matters? It's a little bit of both. But the old bogus stories with obfuscation and duplicity, that doesn't work anymore, right? It's about taking all that data and technology and creativity and actually doing something meaningful. Apple's a good example because these guys, they're pretty far from perfect. People people don't expect brands and companies to be perfect anymore. But what they do is they want them to provide more value value than the competition is providing, give them more value than people are putting into it. See, people are, they're not just giving their dollars, which are obviously extraordinarily important. People want return on investment. But they're also giving their time, their attention, their recommendations, their loyalty. Some people are aware they're giving their data. So they're looking for brands to give them more in return than they're investing as consumers. And if you're a business owner, that's what you need to recognize. It's a value exchange. And if you're a consumer, what you need to recognize is don't buy from companies and don't recommend companies that aren't giving you more in return than you're putting into the relationship. So is this a deeper, because I've seen this with our audience, um, there are companies now that are um, that represent a conservative viewpoint. You know, they stand for the traditional values and those companies are just rocketing. They'll come on the air with us and they just rocket really fast. Um, is that the future for almost everything where you are 
you are identifying with a group of people or is it is the the Procter and Gamble kind of everybody thing still there? That's a great point. So people don't buy from companies that they don't trust, right? And I think it's why, say with your program, right? You're following a business model that's been around for forever. Radio, TV, podcast, regardless, you have sponsors. People trust the brands that advertise on Glenn Beck program because they know that you vetted these brands. You vetted these products. They know you. They trust you. So when you recommend these brands and products, it becomes a shortcut for them to know that they can trust these brands and products. People will not buy from companies they don't trust. But I think a lot of people have sort of misinterpreted this and think that every company needs to save the world. They want to try to become the next Patagonia, right? And and save the environment, which is fine if companies want to try to do that. And it's core to their value system. But everybody doesn't wake up in the morning wanting brands to hug the trees and Correct. save the manatees. Like, find the authentic way that you can improve my life. So this is, I mean, this is Coca-Cola. You know, I, I don't need Coca-Cola to tell me to be less white. What are you doing, Coca-Cola? I, I, I want a good sugary drink. That's what I want. Yeah. Um, and these these products are 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 all over the board and they're they're starting to preach to us how to live our life. And some people love it. Some people really hate it. But I can't, I can't get my arms around the, um, the fact that we're splitting. You know, Coca-Cola was Coca-Cola. That's it. It meant one thing. You either like that over Pepsi or you don't. And it kind of said America, all of America. Those things are all breaking down now. It, is that a good thing, a bad thing? How, how? What is the thinking of these giant companies? I think anything that divides this country is a bad thing, period. Coca-Cola could stand for something great. Like when I think about Coca-Cola, it stands for happiness. That's a nice little right. platform. You can dive the into world that. Sing. Yeah, you can dive into that without stepping on people's toes. And you could do it more meaningfully than a 30-second spot. You can create content and stuff that moves people's lives forward. We don't need to be divisive. And the data is going to prove if you're overly leaning into a woke movement that's not authentic to your brand, it's not going to drive profits. So then all you're going to do as a company is pivot in six months, pivot in 12 months, and find something else. We really need to, as companies, lean into authenticity. And we really need to, as consumers, only buy from companies that are truly authentic. So how do you know that? And how does a company create that? Well, we know it as consumers because we know the truth and we know it basically in real time, right? There's so many ratings and there's so many reviews and we all have friends in the real world. We all have friends on social media. We all know how to look at those basic ratings, reviews, and information and parse out the truth. We don't just read one and, and take it as the gospel. We know how to read lots and lots and figure out whether it's true. And we need to figure out what's important to us and, and buy from companies that, that support what's important to us. And how does it tell the Super 8 story, will you? In the book, you talk about Super 8, which yeah. is a brand I, I've driven by a million times, never have considered. I've stayed at Motel 6. I don't know why I wouldn't stay at a Super 8, but they've completely reinvented themselves. Absolutely. Yeah, let me give you the strategy and then let me tell you what we did. So Super 8, it's a great hotel chain. And what they did is they revamped the large majority of their hotel rooms. 
They're absolutely beautiful inside. They're not pretending to be the Ritz Carlton, but they're really nice inside. They're clean. They've got this great black and white photography. Or if you're in Dallas versus Hawaii, you're going to see different images, mm -hmm. free breakfast. It's as nice as can be. But not a lot of people realized how nice these rooms actually are. And we needed to find a different pathway into telling that story. And what we didn't want to do is tell a story just about the rooms. Because when people stay at Super 8, what they're doing is celebrating the road. They're doing something on a road trip. They're not spending all day in their Super 8 room. So we came across a veteran. His name was Ian. And he was suffering from PTSD. The way he described it, he, he, was, fought, he was taught to go out and fight, but he wasn't taught how to come home. Mm -hmm. When he was at war, he felt like a hero. When he came home, he felt like a zero. So we went to all these veterans hospitals and they tried psychology and they tried pharmacology. Nothing was working. He's on the verge of suicide. Finally, a nurse comes up to him and says, do you know what you need? And he says, no, I don't know what I need. She said, I think you need a hug. Can I give you a hug? He's like, okay. So this nurse wraps her arms around this big, strong, tall Marine, gives him a hug, and all of a sudden he started uncontrollably crying. And there were tears of happiness and relief because finally someone said, I feel your pain. You're important and you're going to get better. The way he describes it, that hug didn't heal him. It was just a small but very important step forward. And he realized he wanted to share this experience. So he found two other veterans. One of them was his dear friend. And they went around the country and they wanted to go to every veteran's hospital giving hugs. Afghanistan vets, Vietnam vets. Give them hugs. Let them understand there's a better solution out there. You're a human and you're important. But they're bootstrapped, like their car's breaking down. They're using bicycles. Right. They have no money. So we realized, wait a second. Super 8's always had a great relationship with veterans. Super 8 can support these guys, free hotel rooms all around the country, give them money to help them with their travel. We'll bring in our video camera crew. We'll help tell the story and build awareness. So we made this incredible micro documentary talking about Ian in the Human Hug Project. And it's so inspiring and it's so educational and it's so uplifting. And at no point are we like, and this is presented by Super 8, right? <laughs> like, Super 8 is a really small part of the story just in the background. It lives in their channels, their email, their website, their social media. And what we did is we were able to create an emotional connection with the audience by empowering Ian educating people about what's going on so this is a completely different way i mean i've done advertising for 45 years um and i've revamped the way advertising has been done on radio but it's still advertising it's still a 60 second commercial etc this is going to super eight and saying hey we want you to spend some money and we're really not going to put you out in the front and it's going to work for you a, how do you convince somebody of that? I mean, you're an advertising guy. And B, how does that work? Mm -hmm. Well, the reason it ultimately works for Super 8 is we know people who have actually seen these videos. And eventually, we want to show them what makes these rooms so great. Because that's part of empowerment, right? You want to be empowered to spend your dollars wisely. So once people are emotionally engaged, they understand the story, they understand what Super 8 believes in, then we can show them images of the room. We can talk about the free breakfast. We can talk about all the amenities. But getting Super 8 on board, 
This is a really great company. It's owned by Wyndham, and they've got a really strong value system. So they really believed in this, and they believe in veterans. So to be honest with you, it wasn't that hard of a sales pitch. It was incremental. We had to go in there and not blast away and say, you have to do this. We showed them images. We showed them the Ian story. We showed a rough cut. And slowly, we brought along all the executives. But I'll tell you, right from the get-go, they were excited about this. So one of the things, um, Jeff, that I want to talk to you about, and this the, the name of the book is Exponential. It is out today, Jeff Rosenblum, um, is the world has changed so much, and maybe it's a generational thing. To where it used to be mass, you know, and 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 I see even though that, uh, you know, podcasts, Joe Rogan uh, is massive. He dwarfs anything on television. OK, dwarfs it. And yet people still will say, well, I saw that on the Today Show or I saw this. It's much bigger on podcasts with Joe Rogan. It, it, does this does it matter when when it's not mass? I mean, Joe Rogan is mass, but when it's when it's out in a video and it's YouTube and it's just going and it's not hitting the mass. Why? Why is this? Why have we made this change? And how is that working? Do you understand my question? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it ironically it comes down to technology. Like at first, TV was this amazing technological solution, right? We had CBS, NBC, ABC. That was about it. So now brands can tell this amazing story through TV, except they started BSing the audience, right? They started telling a false story and people woke up and said, I'm not going to believe all of those stories. Now, fast forward, technology enables you to have all of your different programs. And Joe Rogan, for his example, it's become more fragmented. And people are less interested in, in mass media. They don't want content that's generic. They want content that appeals to them specifically. And they're going to be loyal to brands that sponsor that form of content. So mm. technology is changing things now the way it changed things 70 years ago. And go into business. Uh, we have two minutes before a break. Go into business. How, how, how much more change is coming our way on how to do business? Oh, it's exponential, right? We're, we're entering what they call the fourth industrial revolution, mm -hmm. which basically means all of the change that we've seen is now going to get expedited, right? So now we've got robots that are coming. We've got artificial intelligence that's coming. It's here already, but we're still in the foreshadowing stage. Yeah. And that's why I love this concept of empowerment. And I love when you talk about empathy, because it doesn't matter what happens in this world. If we can lean on those foundational principles of empowerment and empathy and authenticity, it doesn't matter what the world looks like. It doesn't matter what technology is out there. But if you don't change now as a business owner, if you don't change now as a business person, if you don't change your behavior now as a consumer, things are going to change so quickly. You'll be out of business when this fourth industrial revolution. Name of the book is Exponential. Na, na, na.